Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you gather us together and your mercy is new. Your love for us is so big as to be unfathomable and yet personal and here and pursuing us. We thank you that you are a God of truth and grace and power and compassion, of love and understanding. We ask that you would help us again to understand your word. These words that you've given to us, these stories that instruct and guide and inform, that remind us that we are not alone, that we have come from somewhere, we are headed somewhere, that there are people who, like us, sought you and were sought by you, and people who you saved. We offer ourselves to you this morning and particularly this summer, as I know this community is seeking you in earnest ways. Again, honor their seeking, and be with us this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. If you have a Bible and want to turn to Exodus 5 and 6, that'd be great. Could be a hard copy or a soft copy. And as I do, you do that, I want you to think for a second about tests, right? Like, how many of you love a test? Raise your hand if you love a test. Only a few of you, all right? So some of you have just finished a lot of tests in the last couple of weeks, um, and we are all around tests. Um, we are fans in our family of Malcolm Gladwell's podcasts, which always come out this time of year. So they're definitely a part of like summer car trips called Revisionist History. Anybody listen to those podcasts? Right, okay, his new one just came out this week. 
John Richmond nodding along with me. And, and what is it about? It's about a test. It's about what it's like to take the LSAT, right? The law school test. And it's, it's such a good, and he almost never does it. It's such a big, important part of what he's doing this summer is it's actually two episodes at least. Like we listened to the first one yesterday. And he said, oh, you won't really find out all this till episode two, which I don't think he's ever rolled over an episode. Test. So his whole 45, 50 minutes yesterday on the way to a basketball game, my younger son and I listened to his whole description of this process of taking the LSAT. Have you ever taken a, set, a test, gone into a test, thought you were ready, and then bombed the test? Right, right. We'll do, raise your hand, right? Any of you as a student look around? You guys look back. Everybody keep your hands up. You all look over there. Some of them are probably your parents. Right? Ever, especially daunting when you get halfway in, you're like, oh, shoot, this is not going well, right? Like... Um, I had a class in seminary that was a teaching class, like how to teach. And it was one, one of my favorite, favorite teachers. My wife, she was in my girlfriend, but she'd taken the class. Nothing but rave reviews. This teacher that I'd actually worked for. Again, one of my favorite professors. I come from a, a long line of teachers. Both my parents had graduate degrees in teaching. This was my wheelhouse, right? Like teaching class. And I got up, and you're supposed to teach in the class, lead like an hour and a half discussion. And I got up. Uh, when it was my turn, and I led my session for about 35, 40 minutes, and I sat down, and my, student, my peers began to unpack, give me constructive criticism, and in the, I didn't realize that I'd bombed until the criticism began to come in, and I realized that it was, and I totally brainlocked. It was a teaching class, and what I did was get up and did what I'm doing for you this morning. I basically gave a sermon in a teaching class. And so they began to very kindly but directly unpack for me that I did the exact opposite of what I was supposed to do. And I sat there stunned. I'm like, how did I, how stupid am I that in a teaching class I did not teach a class? <laughs> so I went in and I talked to the teacher who was so sweet and kind about it. But I was like, oh, I, I bombed. I bombed that. This morning we're going to look at a passage in Moses' life and we're going to see him have a test that he feels really good about and he's going to bomb. And we're going to see him respond to that bombing. So again, if you have a Bible and can be in Exodus 5 or 6. We're in week 3 of a series that your church and our church, Church of the Ascension, are doing together through the book of Exodus this summer. And you in particular have been invited by your church leadership to use it as a summer for discernment, to seek God in a new way for your own life as an individual and on behalf of this body, this body of Jesus lovers. And that's a lot of what happens in Exodus. God is pursuing individuals and a nation. He's forming people and forming a people for his name. And there's these sets of questions that are going to go on throughout Exodus. Who is God? Who is the Lord? Is the fundamental question of this book. And you're going to hear Pharaoh ask it. But then, of course, the implication, in light of who God is, how does that impact my life? In the first week, Johnny set some context again about what was happening, where the Israelites were in Egypt, how long they'd been there. This guy Moses came, and we finished the end of chapter 2 with Moses and Midian in week 1. And then I was with you last week, and we looked at Exodus 3 and 4, which is generally considered the call of Moses into his work. He goes from being a shepherd to the shepherd of God's people. And I mentioned last week that that set, Exodus 3 and 4, actually extends really to 5 and 6, and it's an extended dialogue between Moses and God and this, this really unique window into someone's intimate relationship with God as they sort out what God's calling them to do and, and what it means for their life. Again, what these implications are. 
God will first call you to himself before he will send you on mission for himself. God will always call you again and again to himself before he sends you on mission. And that's what we see really again in Exodus 3 through 6. So when we finished last week, when last we met our hero, Moses, he was in the desert still and owning this, this invitation from God and God had answered all his questions, all his objections and said, look, you're going to go. I'm sending your brother Aaron. You're going to go and talk to the people. So Exodus 5 and 6, this happens. Exodus meets Aaron. Aaron and Moses go as older brother. Aaron's 83. Moses is, is 80. They go. They meet the elders of Israel. They give him this news. Yahweh has heard you. God's going to save you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has not left you alone. You are going to be taken to the promised land. And this is a pretty big deal, right? There's a lot of opportunity for, for drama. If you want to draw this, paint this, think about this. These are big moments. Don't run through these texts. These chapters have huge things happening every week. And if you're Moses at that point, you might imagine things are going pretty great. Right? Like I, I was a little scared in the desert, burning bush and everything, but... I've left, I've met Aaron, Aaron and I are doing this thing, the elders seem excited, let's go to Moses, I mean, let's go to Pharaoh, let's get this thing moving. And you can imagine if you're Moses what you might feel like the, your expectations might be of for how long this would take. Like God doesn't say, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh and then it'll take 37 days and then you'll leave, or three months and then you'll leave, or two years, he just says, go. And if you're Moses, and if it was me, I'd think, well, this probably be, I mean, it's pretty fast, right? Like we've been here 400 years. We don't really need to sit around. I can pack in a couple of days. Let's move. And if you remember and go back and read this maybe later this afternoon in Exodus 3 and 4, here's what God gave for Moses to do. Here was the test. Go with the elders of Israel and Aaron and tell Pharaoh to let my people go on a three-day journey to offer sacrifices to our God. Go with the elders and Aaron to tell Pharaoh, let my people go on a three-day journey to offer sacrifices to our God. Pretty specific, word of the Lord. Often, many of us would say, if God would just speak to me directly, be so easy. just speak to me directly, God. Well, God spoke directly to Moses. Moses saw, I got that test down. So he goes to Pharaoh, and if you read chapter 5, which we didn't read this morning, you see where he bombs the test. He doesn't take the elders. He only goes with Aaron. He doesn't say, let us go on a three-day journey. He says, let us go into the wilderness to hold a festival. We don't have a clear biblical explanation of what festival meant to Moses, but that's not what he was told to do. He doesn't say three days. But when that doesn't work, Pharaoh doesn't say, okay. He comes back with an alternative proposal. Now he says three-day journey, but we have to do it, otherwise our God will bring plagues on us, which again is not what God had said to do. So there was the test, simple test. Teach a class. And instead of following God's word and passing the test, Moses fails. And what happens is all he does is get Pharaoh angry. And Pharaoh pushes back. And he asks again the central question of Exodus because God comes, or Moses comes in and says, hear the word of the Lord. Let us go to do this festival. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is this God that I'm supposed to respond to? Because I, Pharaoh, think I'm a God. And he says, now hear the word of Pharaoh. And the word of Pharaoh is, go to the Israelites, who apparently have too much time on their hands, take the straw away and make them make bricks with no straw. 
And then in the few short verses describing that experience when the Israelites have basically get oppressed in an even deeper way, the Hebrew phrase for hard labor is used seven times. They were already slaves. But now seven times hard labor. Pharaoh is asserting his power and his relevance. Oh, you thought there's some Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh. I'm going to tell you who the God really is. He's going to assert himself. I have power. I still matter. Some of you may have seen over the last few weeks, there have actually been a series of albums that have come out that, that beg relevance. Bruce Springsteen has a new album out. Madonna has a new album out. Taylor Swift has a new album out. And over and over again, the reviews of those articles beg that question of what the album is doing, which is begging, are they relevant still? All, particularly on Madonna, people are like, well... Is she still relevant? You can see the writers. She's wrestling with her relevance. Pharaoh's relevance is threatened. And what does he do? He doubles down on power. So things are pretty bleak at the end of chapter 5. And if you're Moses, you can imagine what this felt like. I left Midian. I felt great. I had this simple test and I failed. And I, I actually brought deeper hardship on my people who now don't trust me, and even more deeply, they don't trust Yahweh. They're so beaten down, you'll see in chapter 6, after Moses has this interactive prayer experience with God again, that when he goes back to Israel and says, no, God really is going to redeem us and save us, they don't even listen. They're too beaten down by then. So Moses, at the end of chapter 5, has failed the test. And rather than just complain about God, he, he makes the one right choice he made he makes in chapter 5, which is he complains to God. He goes and cries out to God, are you really there? Will you really save us? Will you really redeem us? Can you do this, Yahweh? And the passage we heard, read this morning, is God responding. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the burdens. I will deliver you. And again and again and again, God says, this is who I am and what I'm going to do. Again, this very intimate dialogue. We have this very intimate interaction between Moses and Yahweh. I will save my people. So much drama here. So much power. And I just want to highlight two things this morning. I want to give you a way to understand how God works from this text in Exodus, and then I want to invite you again to remember who saves. Okay, just those two things. So first, this passage gives us an incredible insight into how God works in our lives. Have any of you ever wondered, how does God work in, in my life or the life of people around me? There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann who has extracted and laid out what the pattern of God with Israel is in the Old Testament. If you could put that first slide up, that'd be great. And what Brueggemann says is what God first does is orientation. He gets a people set. He gets Israel set, right? They're in orientation, and they're in Egypt orientated. It's not the right orientation. It's not the best orientation, but that's where they are. There's an orientation. They're set in Egypt. Then there's a disorientation. There's an invitation into, into change, Right? And it's going to cost them something. They're going to have to do something. They're going to have to move, but they're invited into something else. But it's fairly disorienting. And they're going to move from Egypt 
into the wilderness. And as we keep reading, you're going to see they don't necessarily respond to that disorientation very well. They don't have food. They don't like manna. They can't find water. And it's so difficult at times, they actually want to go from disorientation back to orientation. Take us back to Egypt, Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die? But fundamentally what is happening is reorientation. They're being formed as a new people. And they're going to move from the wilderness to worshiping God at the mountain, to having God, Yahweh, who saves, living with them in the central part of their camp at the tabernacle, and finally, 40 years later, to moving into Canaan. Now, I would encourage you to memorize this filter. Because this filter is actually how God works in your and my life. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Think about Moses. Moses has a certain orientation toward God when he meets with God in Midian. He's heard about God a bit growing up in Egypt. He understands he's a Hebrew. He's he's married into a priestly family. And then he meets God at the bush, right? So he has a certain orientation about who God is. Doesn't mean the orientation is fully complete, fully great, like he murdered somebody, had to flee his family, never really lived with his blood birth family very much. But he has an orientation. Then God calls him into a new orientation, a reorientation through disorientation. He's invited into adventure. Again, he meets God in this burning bush. He's told to go back and change his life. And in that disorientation, we see Moses responding both well and not well, right? Like he obeys, goes back to Egypt, but oops, he fails in chapter 5, creates his own speech for Pharaoh. And then he repents, and then he's going to fail, and he's going to repent. And part of what God is doing is forming him so that he's reorientated by God's gracious love. Central to that reorientation is God's character. The same way God says to Israel, I will, I will, I will, he's saying it to Moses, I will form you. I will bring you. I will take you. I will save you. And central on our part is us being faithful to the call of God even when we feel disoriented like Moses does at the end of chapter 5. Remember what we said last week. What we notice in the text is that the more that Israel and Moses engage with God, the more they realize God is much bigger than they thought. That God reveals himself to them over and over and over. And they realized, golly, God is way bigger than I thought as he reveals himself to me. Remember we said Exodus is a three-act play, and the central scene of every play was what? God reveals himself. There's a man named Bruce Demarest who wrote a book a few years ago called Seasons of the Soul. Dr. Demarest is a professor at Denver Theological Seminary, and that book is about how God works and grows us through different seasons of our life, seasons of the soul. And what he does is he takes Brueggemann's orientation, disorientation, reorientation, and applies it to our seasons of our life as we grow. But it be us young in the Lord, an adult in the Lord, an elder in the Lord. The way God works in our lives on macro and micro levels is through this process. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Think about it for a second. What if you're here and you're a high school graduate, right? Some of you I know probably, gra- can you, if you graduated recently, right? So walk through a life as a high school graduate. Orientation, your life up to now. You grew up in your family. Maybe you had joys in your families, love in your family, delight in your family, but probably some sorrows or things that just generally drive you crazy, right? You know God in certain ways. You're excited about God, maybe not, maybe ambivalent about God, but you're orientated in a certain way. 
Now you're going to move off to college, and anybody who's gone to college from home will tell you that will feel disorienting. The primary emotion you might feel right now is, I can barely wait to start the engine and get out of the house. But when you get there, you still will feel disoriented. I teach a class of college graduates, and one of the things I ask them to do, it's a, a narrative and edu- a writing class. The first paper I have them write is, tell me about your first week of college. And everybody, no matter how sharp they are, what, how great a school they went to, writes about feeling disoriented the first week. I don't, so when you go to college in a m- couple months, some of you, and everybody looks cool walking around, I can guarantee you that is not what's going on underneath. I have documented proof. And what happens in that space of disorientation is we, we wonder who we are, and we wonder where God is, and we're tempted to flee and throw up our calling, right? But over time, what goes through, all of us who went to college could tell you, is as we lean into being there, we get reoriented. It might be, we might come home at the first semester and feel reoriented. It might take the first year or two, but typically what happens is orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Think about a couple about to get married. Orientation, your life up to now. You might come from a strong family or a weak family. You might have learned a lot about faith and work and school. You might be 25 or 35 or 45. You might have a certain knowledge of yourself and a certain knowledge of your selfishness. But you're going to get disoriented. Note to any of you who are engaged or about to get married, what's going to happen is disorientation. If I'm telling the truth, any of you who are married, raise your hand. Look around the room. It's going to be great and wonderful and stunning and beautiful and harps and everything. But one way to think about marriage is your singleness is going to die. When I do a wedding, this is what I tell the couple. Just heads up, your singleness is about to die. And typically the men get that because they feel the weight of, oh my gosh, I'm going to ask this girl. There's a million girls in the world and I'm going to choose this one. I'm saying only this one. So they work out more sooner than the woman because for the woman getting asked to be married is also attached to what? The wedding. And so typically the women feel more disoriented after the wedding. Not before. The men feel disoriented. That's why they're really nervous when they get ready to pop the question. But then they feel like, Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. How do we live together? You're a night person, I'm a morning person. Why do we fight when we talk at night? How could you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich like that? <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> when my wife is tired, she looks at me sometimes, I'll be drinking water in the kitchen, she'll look at me and she'll go, I don't like how you drink. <laughs> and I'm just drinking water, I'm not drinking, I'm just drinking water. <clears throat> Orientation, disorientation, then reorientation, two becoming one, learning about God in yourselves, learning how to submit to the Lord and serve someone like they matter more than you. Now, in each of these three seasons, there are always temptations and opportunities, right? Each of these present both things. In orientation, those of us who are in spaces of orientation, good spaces, new spaces that might be st- stable, or if we're parents raising a family, you're, and one way to think about your parenting is you're orienting your kids, You're providing a sense of foundation and strength. You're helping them know their strengths. We should make sure our kids know their strengths because it'll help them feel oriented. But you're also tempted, right? Temptation may be to stasis where we're oriented and we're staying how we are. We like Egypt. It ain't so bad. 
Till you came, Moses, Pharaoh gave us straw. Then disorientation, there's the opportunity to try new things, to risk, to be exposed, to know yourself and God in new ways, to seek new input and new mentors. But of course, there's the temptations to flee. Almost without fail in the papers I read about first week of college, there's the temptations to act out with your body in ways you didn't as a younger person. That's true as an older person too, right? If you're in a season of disorientation, the place you're most tempted to act out to to forget you're disoriented is still going to be there. And then there's opportunities and temptations in reorientation. There's an opportunity for maturity, for being a calm, present leader, for bringing joy and new trust. Every institution needs reoriented leaders. But there's a temptation, right? Particularly to beat up those who don't know what you know, who haven't gone what you've been through. We even have a term for that, right? It's called sophomoric, right? Anybody been in a college or high school setting, you know sophomores act like, oh, I I know more than you. You're so dumb because you're a freshman, right? That's what being sophomoric is. That's the temptation when reoriented. Oh, if someone only knew what I knew about worship or about that passage of the Bible or about this part of church season or... Watch out, because God's going to take you through this again. (laughs) And then you're going to have to be like, oh, shoot. Maybe I was a little arrogant that last time. God uses these same seasons to form you and me. He uses Moses as a model and Israel as a model. And I would encourage you to chew on these as we go through Exodus together. Test them out. Prove me wrong. But I bet you can't. Because they're extracted from Scripture. And they're battle-tested. See, no ministry ever grew without going through these. No ministry. Not Israel, not the early church, not young life. And there's no such thing in the Christian life as an untested faith. There's no such thing. God is inviting his whole people to become a people for his name. All of Israel has to go through this because God needs Israel for you and me. If they fail at this, you and I are not here. Again, I would encourage you to discuss these this summer. It would be an incredible, fruitful discussion to ask when you're in groups or over the dinner table or at lunch, where would you say you are in your life? I bet you're all in one of these. Now, you might be macro-oriented but disoriented at work or reoriented at home but disoriented with elder, elderly parents who are ailing. But I encourage you to think about these categories. I encourage you to talk about them. Parents, I encourage you to share with your kids what it's like for you. Don't just expect them to share. So we will come back. I'm going to be here a time or two later this summer, and I'm, I'm coming back on this. <laughs> First, this is how God works in our life. The way he works in Moses, the way he works in Israel is the way he works in you. Second thing, again, this passage, which is so theocentric, it's so centered on God, it reminds us who saves. That is the fundamental question of Exodus. Who saves? Because you and I are promised a Savior every time we turn around. In Egypt, they believed the Nile could save, or Pharaoh could save, or all the different idols we'll see in the plagues. The real battle between the protagonists of 
Exodus are Yahweh and Pharaoh. Who is the true Savior? And again, you and I are tempted as well. One way to know what your idols are is to know if you're feeling disorientation and what, therefore, you're thinking will save you out of that disorienting season. Could be a person, a certain job, a certain amount of money, that house down the street, a new car. Could be a certain habit that you have. Could be a good habit or a bad habit. Oh, if I don't exercise two hours a day, I do not feel myself. Unless you're paid to be an athlete, that might be something to think about. Could just be relief, that thing that helps you feel like you got a break from all the stresses of life here in Northern Virginia. For many of us, we think who can save is us. I can save myself. Just do it my way. If work would only do it my way, if my wife would only do it my way, if this church would only do it our way, if the school would only do it our way, if our coach of our athlete child would only do it our way, it would be fine. If this stoplight would just change when I'm here, blah, blah, blah. So we give ourselves to these potential saviors and we make them a ruler over us the same way Pharaoh is a ruler over Israel. One of the reasons God is allowing this to happen, and it's rough to read in chapter 5 what God allows to happen, is to harden Pharaoh's heart and to help the people be ready to leave orientation. And what he's showing is sin is a harsh taskmaster. Sin will beat you over the head. It's hard labor. It's not a joke. And it's one thing to sit and look at Israel and think, how dumb. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Until you look at yourself, and I look at myself and think, well, here's the things that I think will save me and how easily I go back to them. Maybe anger is your savior, then you're ruled by anger. Maybe lust is your savior, then you're ruled by lust. Maybe you're selfish and you're ruled by your selfishness. Maybe you're full of gossip and you're ruled by gossip because you think those things will save you. But what we see here again and again in chapter six is God alone can save. God alone can save. And that will be the question Israel has to answer. Would they rather stay oriented to Pharaoh and be in bondage or trust God to go through disorientation so they can be bound to the Savior of the world? And that is the same question you and I have to answer. And God is reaffirming to Moses and then to Israel that he will save them. Here are the verbs used in Exodus 6. God says, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. Bring, free, redeem, take. One writer says God, it is God's own action that will dominate Israel's future, not their own action. It is God's action. And I wonder if we are willing to allow that to be true. Bring, free, redeem, take. God's going to keep his word. He's going to feel their woes. He's going to set them free. He's going to draw them close to himself and he will lead them home. Aren't those the things that we look for an idol to do? 
We give ourselves to things that will bring us home, we think, or keep their word, we think, or feel our woes, we think, or set us free, and instead they just tie us more deeply and deeply into bondage. And what this text is inviting you and I to do is reflect on the God who will save and watch him work the next few chapters. Watch him be faithful to these words. And I want you to think for a second again about these. And I'd encourage you to go back this week and read Exodus 6 if you haven't. And I'd encourage you to put your name into the paragraph. God says, therefore, to the people of Vienna, Susan, I am the Lord. Ben, I will take you. John, I will redeem you. That's what's happening here. You're, you're stitched into these texts. What he's inviting you to do if you're feeling and hearing that, it might feel disorienting because he's probably inviting you to leave something that feels safe. Again, all of us, when we left on a minor trip, a couple weeks of camp this summer, going to college, that new job, moving away after college, we all felt that pull, right? Ooh, I'd rather, it's easier to stay. It does feel easier to stay. But it's not the adventure God calls you and me to. And those things will never save. Only God will save. Only God will save. Many of you remember the ad campaign in the 70s and early 80s. Bumper stickers, signs, Jesus saves. That is great marketing. Jesus saves. And it's theologically profound because what it means is nothing else, no one else does. That starts here. Yahweh saves. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you that your word is so beautiful. And that for the centuries of men and women who have mined it, that we might understand it. And see again that these words you gave to Moses in some private place in Egypt have meaning now for us centuries later here in Northern Virginia. You know, some of us this morning, Lord, feel very oriented and safe. And for that, we can give thanks. Some of us this morning feel very disoriented. And we might be tempted, like Moses was, to check our calling, to flee, to look again to Pharaoh or some other thing that we think will save us. We pray in particular this morning for people who are tempted that way, that you would give them the courage to cry out to you. We pray you would speak to them in the ways only you can speak. And Lord, we pray for those of us who might be reoriented, for the joy of that, for being able to look and see how you brought us through something. Grant us courage to keep following. Grant us words to share with friends we have. Lord, these categories don't just apply to men and women and children in this room. They actually apply to the world because they're your categories. And we have friends who are disoriented. 
and could be oriented with you, a God who saves. Give us courage, perhaps even or the opportunity this week to share what we're learning. 